Good morning, everybody. So glad to see you all here this morning. Um, as Elizabeth said, Pastor Greg and majority of his family are uh, out and with uh, their family celebrating Thanksgiving, and so we uh, hope that they can uh, have safe travels back. Um, real quick, before I, we jump in, I wanted to remind you that uh, we are taking nominations for elders. Um, there are slips, I believe, out on the table in the lobby. So if you have somebody in mind uh, in the church that you really think um, could be a great elder, could be somebody who could uh, help uh, our church and be even part of that leadership, uh, we'd love to have you nominate them. Um, you can fill out that slip, you can put it in the joy box or uh, give it to a staff member. Um, so uh, I think this is the last week for nominations and then we'll move forward from there. So yeah, so if you haven't done that or you're looking forward to doing that, uh, please do that today. So uh, my name is Jonathan. Uh, for those of you that are new or haven't been in a while, I'm the student pastor here, like Elizabeth said. Um, and we have been going through a series called uh, the Hello, My Name is God. And so we've been looking at the names of God. Um, so a name is important, obviously. Um, it's what we can recognize somebody by. It's how we recognize and know them. Uh, my name is Jonathan. That doesn't tell you much about me. Um, if we lived a long time ago, I would tell you my name is Jonathan, and you would say, oh, that means this, it means this, and that tells me about your family, that tells me about who you are. Um, my middle name is David. Um, so if you've cracked your Bible open once, uh, you've probably read the name David in scriptures. He uh, was King David. Um, don't worry, I'm not anything like him. I'm so sorry. Um, but King David was uh, the king of Israel, and so my first name is Jonathan. My middle name is David. Um, and a little bit of history, Jonathan and David in the Bible were best friends. And so um, I like to make a joke uh, that my mom hates, that she named me that, uh, so because she knew I wouldn't have friends and I'd have to be my own best friend, you know? Um, not true, not true. Um, I've got one friend. I married her, so... Uh, <laughs> but regardless, uh, names are important. They tell us a lot about somebody. They tell us a lot about uh, who they are. Uh, maybe not so much anymore, um, but... Names were vitally important in biblical times. Um, and so I think it's an, I, I love this series. I, I, before Lauren and I moved down here, we were uh, at a church up in a small little town called Azel, and we did a little series with the students there where we talked about the names of God and, and what they meant. And so I just love this. And so when Pastor Greg started talking about it, I was like, let me do it. Can I, can I, can I be a part of this? Help me, help me, please. I'll do it. So... Um, so glad to be up here to, to do that. So um, let's look at our, our verse that uh, Pastor Greg has that is guiding all of this series. So Psalms chapter 34, uh, verse 3, it tells us, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The name of God. Such a beautiful thing. Such a beautiful thing that, that as, like even as Pastor Greg was preaching last week, we get to know and see and speak the personal name of God. That, that he, he loves us enough, that he trusts us enough to give us his name. That he says, I want to have that relationship with you and I want to be in relationship with you so much that I want you to know who I am. He could have given us scripture and given us everything and never 
told us his name. Never told us his name, never been called by anything other than God. Well within his right to do that. But he loves us so much. He says, I'm going to tell you my name, and I'm going to have you call me different things so that you know who I am. So that you know what I'm about. These, these names that we're going to be getting into um, today and, and moving forward are more descriptive of who God is. More descriptive of, of his attributes and, and what, what he loves and how he acts and how he, he interacts with us. And, and it just, it's, it's beautiful. I, I'm just going to say it's beautiful multiple times, so let's get into it. Genesis chapter 14, uh, we're going to start in verse 17. It says, After his return from the defeat of Cheldolomor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, let Anir, Eskol, and Memre take their share. So we have this story with Abram, and <clears throat> a little backstory: Abram, uh, minding his own business, and there was a war, basically, where there were five kings versus four different kings. Um, and the way things were happening back then is you would have a king and he would be responsible for his area, and he reported or tithed to or gave to or whatever to a king that was higher than him. And so he would have his own king that was over him, and then maybe they had a king over them, and there was one king that was in charge of this entire area. And so king of Sodom, king of whoever reported to this king, and this king reported to that king, and this king had authority over all of them. And so the kings that were in the bottom that had their own territory but had to report to somebody else were tired of it. They had been in this situation for 12 years, and in the 13th year, they decided they were done. And so they rebelled against the other kings, and they fought this war, and they lost. They, uh, <coughs> they got destroyed, and uh, all their people and all their goods got taken from them, and um, and so part of the people that were taken from them was Lot, which is Abram's nephew. And so somebody comes and talks to Abram and says, hey, these kings have come and they've kidnapped your nephew Lot and, and all of his people and all the things in Sodom. Um, we need your help. And so Abram takes his people, his men, his servants that he had trained that were part of his family, and they went in the, in the night and they defeated this other king and defeated these, uh, this other group and brought everything back, right? They brought Lot back. They brought back all their possessions and all these things. Can I have my water? <coughs> Sorry. Um, and so Abram went and did that. Sorry, just recovering from a cough for the past seven years. 
Um, so Abram goes and he, he wins. He wins the battle. He takes uh, his men. He wins and he brings Lot back and he brings back all of his possessions and the possessions of the other kings that, were also, that also lost this battle. And he's coming back. And so this is where we pick up the story. And we've, we see the king of Sodom come out. Um, and that is Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah. But this is well before that time. Uh, we see him come out and he, he's talking to Abram. And then we see Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is an interesting character because we only see reference to him three times in scripture. And we don't know much about him. Um, but it tells us something very, very interesting about Melchizedek. If we look at his name, and we look up uh, what it means. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. And so immediately, as we are talking about names and we're looking at names, we know that Melchizedek is a little bit different, that his name tells us that he is um, king over a righteous nation, or he's a righteous king, or he himself is just righteous and happens to be king we know that righteousness is something that is important to Melchizedek. Uh, if we turn to Psalms chapter 10, 110 and verse 4, it tells us this uh, about Melchizedek. Uh, David, in this moment, in this psalm, is prophesying through his psalm about the coming Messiah. And he says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is the second time we hear about Melchizedek in Scripture. Um, and the interesting, interesting thing about Melchizedek is he's not only king, but he is also the priest of his nation, um, which is unheard of. David was not allowed to be king and priest. Nobody was allowed to be a king and also be a priest. Um, the Lord laid out in Scripture very clear dynamics to where if you were king, you could not also hold the title of priest. You could not have control over both of those areas of your, your nation or whatever it may be. But Melchizedek is a little bit different. He is both king and he is priest. And so in David, uh, in his Psalms right here, he's telling us as the Messiah comes that the Messiah will not come from the Le Levitical order of priesthood, which is set up in the Old Testament and what was followed for centuries and centuries, that the Messiah will actually come from the order of Melchizedek instead of the Levites. And so Melchizedek is this special person, this special person that is different than every other priest that we see. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, we see our final mention of Melchizedek. I have a lot of sticky notes, so we're going to be flipping a lot. Hebrews chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 3, it tells us, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers." though these also are descended from Abraham. And so he's talking about Melchizedek, and he says, even Abram, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. And so he's setting Melchizedek up as this highly important person, and many scholars believe that he is potentially, um, and most people, most scholars believe that he is Christ incarnate before the New Testament. And so 
Melchizedek, being priest and king, having no father, having no mother, having no genealogy, and having no end of days, um, is believed to be Christ before the New Testament, Christ incarnate before the New Testament. And so we see Abram come back from war, come back from his spoils, um, and he tithes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek gives his blessing, and this is where we see uh, today's name of God. Again, in Genesis chapter 14, and starting in verse 19, it says, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Melchizedek, who we believe to be uh, Jesus incarnate before the New Testament, is blessing Abram to and from God Most High. And this is where we see our name of God. It is El Elyon. El Elyon. And, being two words, let's break it down. So El uh, is the word that the people of this time used to just say God. Whether they were worshiping God, our God, or they were worshiping a God they created, they used the word El to denote God. Um, And in this time, Many nations, many people were polytheistic, so they worshiped multiple gods. They thought there was a pantheon of gods. They thought um, there were gods for the snow, gods for the rain, gods for the crops, for everything. And so they worshiped gods and gods and gods and gods and all these little g gods. And so they would use this word quite often. And we actually know that Abraham or Abram at this time, like his family was part of that group of people. Uh, In Joshua chapter 24, yes, Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, it says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So we know of Abraham that his father and his fathers before him and before him, they lived in an area called Terah, and they served other gods. And so they use this word quite often. So when Melchizedek uses the word El Elyon, that Abram knows that El means God, and he has probably used that on a regular basis. We know that this is true as well because we see also in Genesis chapter 31. I hope you know your, have your Bible drills down because we're going everywhere. Genesis chapter 31, uh, starting in verse 32, it tells us, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Jacob is leaving and he's taking his wife, Rachel, and all his family with him. And uh, Rachel's father is like, you're stealing my stuff. You're taking my stuff. You have your stuff, take your stuff, but do not take mine. And so he's, he says, again, anyone, anyone with whom you find your God shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what I have that Jacob has that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel, his wife, had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. 
And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. So Jacob, who is of the lineage of Abram, his wife, Rachel, grew up in the same area, Terah, uh, where Abram's father lived and his father before him lived, and she's stealing household gods from her father. And so this area that Abram grew up in and that Rachel is from is known to worship multiple, multiple gods. And so El, again, meaning God for them, Abram knows what that means. He's aware of what that means. And then Melchizedek adds in Elyon. Elyon. And Elyon, when we translate it, means highest or most high. And so a lot of times they would use this to denote a king that was of the higher order or was over the other kings. Um, and Melchizedek puts those together and he says, El Elyon. And so at this moment, Abram is following God. But this is the first instance we see of God being called El Elyon, God Most High. And so El Elyon means God Most High or Most High God. And so what does that mean for us? What does that mean to, to know that El Elyon is God Most High? Well, if we flip over to Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 13, it tells us this. <clears throat> verse 1, sorry. Can't read my own writing. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. So when we say God is God most high, when we say El Elyon, when we say God is most high, we are saying that there are no other gods before him. There are no other gods that can be before him. And, and this is something that Abram has began to understand, coming from uh, an area where he probably in his early years worshipped multiple gods, had an encounter with God, and now worships God most high. He knows that there are other gods that people worship, and he's He's hearing Melchizedek say, no, this is God most high. Wherever you see, whatever you see, what other gods you have, whatever gods that maybe your family worships, this is God most high. There are no other gods before him. There are no other gods that can compete with him. And so El Elyon, God most high, he is, he's like that king over all the other kings. He is God before, over and above any other God. Now I hear you say, okay, Jonathan, well, that's great. I don't worship any other gods. I don't have a statue of, of Buddha. I don't have a statue of a log that I pray to or anything else in my home that I worship. I don't have any other gods, so of course God is God most high. We do. We have gods in our lives that we worship. If we move to Psalms chapter 139, Verses 23 and 24 tell us, and then again, this majority of the Psalms are written by David, and this one again is written by David, and, and a lot of his Psalms are either he's, he's worshiping God, or he's crying out to God, or he's angry at God, but he's, he's speaking about God, and so Psalms chapter 139, verses 23 and 24, this is what he's telling God. He says, search me, O God, search me, and know my heart. Look inside of me, God. Know my, my inner working. Know my heart. Know what I believe. Know what I think. See everything about me. Try me and know my thoughts. 
verse 24, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. When he talks about any grievous way here, he says, search me, God, know me, see my heart, see my thoughts, and see if I have anything that I idolize. See if there's anything in my life that you can hold as grievance against me. See if there's anything in my life that I am holding above you, that I am worshiping before you, that I am in, in love more with than you. See if there's anything in my life that takes precedence over you, God. And so, yes, we do not sit down and we don't worship chairs and the concrete and the trees and all these things, but we have gods in our life. We have, we have our own pride. We have greed. We have gluttony and and, and all these different things in our life that are gods to us because we idolize them. They become idols to us. Sometimes that's, that's our own relationships. Sometimes we put somebody else before God. Sometimes we put the things that we do in life before God. High school boys, when they play football, sometimes that becomes their God. Whatever it is that in your life that you hold higher than the Lord has become a God to you. You don't bow down and worship. You don't sit there and pray to football and pray to money and pray to all these things. But when you put precedence on something else over God, you are saying that God, no, you are not most high, that this is. And we're all guilty of it. And so when we say God most high, when we read those words in scripture, we're saying, God, no, you are higher than everything. That yes, I need money in my life, but if it takes me away from you, take it away. Yes, I need this in my life, but if it takes more precedence than you, Lord, take it away. And that's what David is saying in this psalm. He's saying, search my heart, know my heart, know my thoughts, and see, tell me, Lord, if there's anything, absolutely anything that I put precedence on over you, because he wants God to be most high. And that's what he calls us to do. He calls us to to call him and, and see him as God most high. So what do we know? We know that El means God. El Yon means most high. El, El Yon means God most high. And we know that anything we put above God is an idol that becomes most high. But what else do we know about El El Yon? We know through Melchizedek's words in Genesis chapter 14 that El El Yon is the creator of and possessor of heaven and earth. If we go back to Genesis chapter 14 and we read his words, he says, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Possessor of heaven and earth. So we know that God, he, Melchizedek, who we, we associate with Christ, is telling us that God most high, El Elyon, is the creator and the possessor of heaven and earth. He is the one that is in control, that owns, and has created all things that we see. I know Pastor Greg talked about that some in the previous weeks, about who God is and how God is the creator. And Melchizedek reminds us of that and reminds Abram of that. As Abram comes back from this battle and he has all these things and he, he's going back to the land that God promised him and he's taking Lot back to the land that he's in, Melchizedek is reminding him that the God that rescued you, that brought you out of this war, that gave you victory. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. And I love that word. He is the possessor of it. 
He owns it. It is his. This earth that we live on is God's. It's not ours. He trusts us with it, and he, he allows us to steward it, either good or bad, for him, but he owns it. The house that I live in is God's. Everything that I have, everything that I touch, everything that I see, God possesses it. He created it. He divinely created it. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. El Elyon is also sovereign over all. That word sovereign means that he, he has control, he has authority, he has position, he has authority over all things. And so if we, um, one of my favorite stories in scripture is in Numbers chapter 22 through 24, and I'm not going to read chapters 22 through 24 through you, for you because that's a lot. But in Numbers chapter 22, we see a pagan prophet, and his name is Balaam, or Balaam, however you pronounce it. And he, Balaam is called forth by this king who wants to have him go as a pagan prophet and prophesy against the people of Israel, prophesy against God's people. And so he pays him, and Balaam tells him, being a pagan prophet, he goes, I can only prophesy what God most high allows me. So this pagan prophet who does not follow God is called by a king to go prophesy against the people of God, and he says, I can only do what God allows me. I can only do what God most high allows me. And so even this pagan prophet believes and understands that there is God most high that is in control and sovereign over all. As we continue to read that story, as Balaam goes to see the king and whatnot, uh, my, my most favorite part is he's to, on this path and he's riding his donkey and in the path is an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord is there ready to kill Balaam and the donkey like nudges him against the wall and so Balaam beats his donkey and he says, let's get back on the path and so he keeps going and the donkey pushes him in into the wall and beats his donkey again and then the donkey pushes him off the road and he's, he beats him again and the donkey turns around and goes, do you not see him trying to kill you in the road? And the donkey talks to him and, and then Balaam's eyes are opened up and he sees this angel and I just love the story of a, a talky donkey in the Bible. And so if you haven't read it, please go read it. It's fantastic. Um, but Balaam tells us something cool in, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 16. It tells us the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High who sees the vision of the Almighty. Balaam, this pagan prophet, is pronouncing these oracles, and the king is saying, no, you need, to, you need to prophesy against the people of Israel, and Balaam opens his mouth, and he prophesies that the people of Israel are going to prosper. And the king is like, no, we, I need you to prophesy against them, and he opens his mouth, and he prophesies that the people of Israel are going to prosper. And the king is like, listen, I don't think you understand what I'm asking you to do. You should prophesy against them. And he tells him, I can only do what God most high the Almighty One allows me to do. And that's so cool that even a pagan prophet, somebody who doesn't follow God, can see that God is sovereign over all. That God has authority even over his words. That if God does not allow him to prophesy against the people of Israel, he's not going to prophesy against the people of Israel. And I just think that's beautiful that a pagan prophet does that that he understands that and he sees that. 
If we flip back over to Psalms chapter 21, where David again is, is, is speaking to the Lord and speaking about the Lord and, and the things that are going on in his life. And, and so if we know anything about David, um, David, king of Israel, um, really ushered in Israel and the people into a very prosperous time. Um, David was a king of war, so there were often very wars going on, and they conquered, and they uh, survived, and they won. And then his son Solomon was a king of a peaceful time when things were very prosperous. They were building the temple and all these things. And so David, uh, in this psalm, is um, talking about God. In Psalms 21, verse 7, it says 17 in your scriptures, but it's actually verse 7. So uh, it says, For the king trusts in the Lord, King David trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. King David, talking about God and talking about himself, he says, The king, myself, I trust in the Lord. I trust in God. I trust in our Father. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, through the steadfast love of God most high, the God, the one sovereign over everything, he, King David, trusts that through the steadfast love of the most high, he shall not be moved. In a time where, where the people are, are in battle and the people are fighting for their land and, and all these things are going on, the king sits and he prays and he worships God and he says, I trust you, Lord, God most high, sovereign over everything, that through your steadfast love, we will not be moved. We will not be moved. That these battles we fight, we will be victorious because you are on our side. We will be victorious because you are sovereign over all. That you have not seen a battle that we will face that, that we can't win because we have you on our side. That no king is gonna come up with any uh, strategy that you are surprised by that you are prepared for everything and that you are sovereign over all. He says, I trust you in your steadfast love. We will not be moved. King David, believed to be the greatest king of the people. Trust in the Lord. In one of my classes, um, we are talking about leadership and and in the book, it talks about King David, and it talks about like, how he leads and, and how the Lord leads and what David did well and what David didn't do so well. Um, and, and I was talking to the professor, and we talked about David, and, and he has this steadfast trust in who God is. And steadfast meaning like long-enduring, long-suffering, that, that David... His leadership is so great, not because of anything he's done, not because he did this or he did that or he didn't do this, but because he has steadfast trust and faith in God. And a God most high that is author of everything, that is sovereign over everything. And we're just going to look some more at what David says because David sometimes, he's got it. He understands, right? Psalms chapter 83, verse 18, it tells us that they may know that you are alone, that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. In this psalm, that you, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth, over everything. And then 
another one of my favorite stories in, in Scripture, in Daniel. Daniel's such a good book. If you haven't read the book of Daniel and got to see what Daniel goes through and how he trusts in the Lord and how he has faith in the Lord, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their faith in who God is. If you haven't read the book of Daniel, I highly recommend it. If your, your faith is struggling or you're unsure of things, the book of Daniel is a fantastic book for you. So in Daniel chapter 4, uh, verses 34 and 35, <clears throat> we're going to read about King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar is an interesting guy because he, um, he's one of those kings that thinks he should be worshipped. He's one of those kings that for a long time thought that people should worship him because he is the bee's knees. He built a golden idol for himself, had people bow down to it. When the trumpets played, the man had an ego, and, and we're going to get to see what God does. So chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, it tells us this. At the end of the day, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So King Nebuchadnezzar, who has a bit of an ego and wants people to bow down and worship him, has this moment in his life where God takes everything away from him and he spends time in the wilderness thinking he is a goat. King Nebuchadnezzar spends time in the wilderness on all fours eating grass and it talks about the dew on his back every morning thinking he is a wild animal living with the wild animals. King Nebuchadnezzar, you're doing a great job, right? And so he spends this time in the wilderness and finally, again, he says, at the end of the days, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, who want people to worship me, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. It wasn't until he looked up and he saw God, he lifted his eyes to heaven, lifted his eyes to God most high. His reason returned to him. He no longer thought that he was a wild animal. <clears throat> and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. King Nebuchadnezzar, if you read anything about King Nebuchadnezzar, in, in Scripture we see King Nebuchadnezzar kind of turn over a leaf, but the history books are not so kind to King Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's seen as kind of a, uh, a dictator and, and somebody who's not really nice to his subjects. And so we see a different side here. But King Nebuchadnezzar, who um, some put on par with like Napoleon and Nero in, in his time, says... I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned, me, returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then he goes on to talk about God. He says, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Not King Nebuchadnezzar's dominion, not King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, but God, Most High's dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Not King Nebuchadnezzar, not his, his lineage, God's kingdom endures from all inhabitants. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He's an inhabitant of earth. He says, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, I, I, I am nothing compared to who God most high is. And he does according to his will 
among the hosts of heaven. Not the will of the king, not the will of the people, but his will. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? None. There's a song that, um, and I'm not going to sing because I want y'all to stay in the sanctuary. Um, There's a song that says, not what I've done, but who you are. And not who I am, but what you've done. King Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that in this moment. It has nothing to do with anything that King Nebuchadnezzar has done. But it's all about who God is. And it has nothing to do with who we are. It's all about what he's done. Our God most high sovereign over everything that we can't even say, God, why did you do this? Because he knows and he, he is sovereign. That's the God we serve. That is God most high, El Elyon. And King Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that. We're gonna see later his son. He, not so good. <clears throat> El Elyon is also to be worshipped. We see a little bit of it here and there, but he's to be worshipped. In Psalms chapter 7, verse 17, David sings the praise, sings praise to the Most High. I'm not going to flip to all of these because there's so many of them. If you want to read about God Most High, go to Psalms and just start reading and you'll see it time and time again. And the, the Psalms are, are, are worship songs. They're, they're David worshiping. They're different kings worshiping God. Sometimes that's worshiping and saying, God, I'm angry and I don't understand and I don't know what to do and I don't know why you're doing this, but I worship you regardless. Or it's, God, you've prospered me in this and I worship you. Or God, I'm just so confused and I don't know what to do, but I worship you anyway. And you see time and time again in the Psalms how, how they talk about God most high. In Psalms chapter nine, verse two, David talks about God. He talks about who God is and he worships him. Um, Okay, in Psalms 92, verse one, he talks about the Sabbath and how the Sabbath are resting on the Sabbath is worshiping God most high, that even God most high, creator, possessor of the heavens and the earth decided that the seventh day, the Sabbath day should be a day of rest. And that when we do that, when we take our Sabbath rest, that we are worshiping the God most high because he saw fit for it to happen like that. Daniel chapter four, which we will turn to because I love Daniel. Chapter 4, verse 2. This is Nebuchadnezzar again. Um, <clears throat> he, he has put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, right? He has built this idol. He wants people to bow down and worship them, worship the idol when the trumpets play. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are friends of David, and David's probably out of town at this time because we don't see anything about David, uh, they decide and they, they say, we are not going to do that. You blow your trumpets, Lord, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not going to bow down to your idol. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's people, they figure this out, and they say, these three guys are not worshiping you. And Nebuchadnezzar brings them forward, and he says, all right, I'm looking at you three right now. They're going to blow the trumpets, and what you do next, you're either going to go in that fiery furnace, or you're going to be part of our kingdom. They blow that trumpet, and those three men, they stand there. And they tell, they tell Nebuchadnezzar something so interesting. They say, We don't have to answer to you because our God that we serve, God most high, will protect us. And even if he doesn't, 
even if you throw us in that fiery furnace and we perish, we still trust him and we will follow him and not you. Even if he doesn't rescue us, we will follow him. And so Nebuchadnezzar throws them in the furnace. Three men, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar says in chapter four, verse two. It says, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Told you all of that about Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I'm reading a different verse. So we'll get back to that again, I promise, because it's fantastic. Just keep that in your mind, a nugget for later. Um, Not much later. Verse 2, King Nebuchadnezzar is praising God. He says, it has seemed good to me, good to King Nebuchadnezzar, to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for him. King Nebuchadnezzar praising God, that he acknowledges it, and he sees that God is good. El Elyon is to be worshipped, and El Elyon is our deliverer. In Psalms chapter 78, he, he is called our rock and our redeemer. He, he's our, our strong fortress. He delivered Abram from this battle. He allowed Abram to succeed and be successful. He is our rock and our redeemer. El Elyon is our shelter and our refuge. <coughs> our shelter and our refuge. I love that word refuge, that, that, that idea of safety. And this is where everything I said two minutes ago comes into play. Daniel chapter three, verses 26, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they tell him, they tell King Nebuchadnezzar, regardless of what happens, they're gonna serve the Lord. In 20, verse 26, it says, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And if you continue to read, they didn't even smell like smoke. This, this fiery furnace that King Nebuchadnezzar had had the temperature raised to seven times its normal heat and the guards who are professional guards throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into this fire, throwing them in, died. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in this fire, tied up, and then they look in and they're walking around freely and Nebuchadnezzar sees a fourth person in there. And he says he has the appearance of a god. And he calls them out. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you, I can see, are servants of God Most High. He has delivered them. He has given them refuge. He has given them shelter in this furnace. In Psalms chapter 91, it talks about dwelling in the shelter of the Almighty. It talks about dwelling in his refuge. That if we dwell in his shelter and we dwell in his refuge, that we are under the shadow of the Almighty, of the God Most High. That El Elyon is our shelter and our refuge. El Elyon is also to be feared. Now, this is not a fun one because we think about the word fear and why. Why would we fear God? When they talk about fear more, most often than not, and sometimes it, it is actual fear, but when they talk about fear most, more often than not, they're talking about this idea of reverence, that, that we see who God is, 
as God most high and we revere him. That we see who he is and we're so overcome with his ideas, with his nature, with his love, with his mercy, with his grace, with everything that he is, that we can't help but fall down and honor him and revere him. And he is to be feared. In Psalms chapter 47, he talks about this great king fearing God. Again, in Daniel, just love it. It's fantastic. Read it, I promise. Daniel chapter five, Nebuchadnezzar's son. This is where we see Nebuchadnezzar's son royally mess things up. So Nebuchadnezzar has died and his son is taken over and he's having this party and he's taking, taking these vases or uh, barrels or whatever that were the people of Israel's that got taken when they were taken captive and he's brought them into his house and he's using them for wine for his parties. And so a hand appears out of thin air and starts writing on the walls. And everybody is rightfully kind of freaked out. And so they call for somebody to interpret this writing and Daniel comes in and, and the king tells him, he says, if you can interpret this, I'm gonna give you all the women, I'm gonna give you all the things, I'm gonna give you all the glory. And Daniel says this in verse 17, he says, then Daniel answered him and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretations. <coughs> o king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. So he starts him out and he says, the most high God gave your father all of these things that you now have. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. King Nebuchadnezzar, because he saw who God Most High was, that God blessed him, that whatever he decided to do, the, God, the Lord blessed. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar gets a big ego, and God reminds him, I've put you in this place. I've put you in leadership. Verse 22 and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessel of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, teke, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Teke, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Pedes, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So this hand is writing this on the wall. And David says, your kingdom is numbered. 
You have been found wanting, and everything's going to be taken away. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar gets this prophecy, your kingdom is about to end, and he's like, thank you, Daniel, thank you, here's all these rewards that you didn't want in the first place. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. King Belshazzar did not have that reverent fear of who God was. He saw how God treated Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar followed the Lord and when he didn't, and he had no regard for it. And so God Most High reminded him and his people, I put him in charge. Here's your warning about what's going to happen. And he, he didn't care. He didn't fear the Lord. So El Elyon, God Most High, somebody to be worshipped, somebody to be feared, who is sovereign over everything, creator and possessor of heaven and earth, And the beautiful thing is that Jesus Christ is the son of El Elyon. Jesus Christ is the son of El Elyon. We're going to flip into the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, as as the angel is talking to Mary, telling her that she's about to have a child, that she's going to become pregnant through the Holy Spirit, In chapter 1, verse 32, it tells us this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Jesus Christ, Son of El Elyon, of God Most High. Our Lord and our Savior is not somebody that we've created in our minds, not somebody that we've invented, but is the Son of God Most High. In Luke chapter 8, this is Jesus himself. In chapter 8, verses, verse 28, it says, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice. So Jesus is, is healing a demon-possessed man. And so this demon in this man sees him. He says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. And Jesus Christ approaches a demon, somebody who we for sure know does not serve God, somebody that we know is tormenting people because that's what they love to do because they want to pull people away from God. And Jesus Christ walks up to him and he says, you son of the most high God, this demon recognizing that God is above and over everything that this demon can do, everything that this demon serves. He says, you, Jesus Christ, son of the most high God, please don't torment me. Please don't torture me. Jake, if y'all want to come up. We see time and time again in scripture God being called God Most High. 
and sovereign over everything, creator and possessor of heaven and earth, who we should be worshiping, who we should fear, revere, and honor with our lives. Somebody that we can read about his miracles that have happened in scripture, that we can open this book and we can see how he's shaped our lives, how he's shaped everything. That, that King David worships, that King David fears, that man after man, woman after woman in scripture comes to recognition of who God is. That he's the God higher than the gods they worship, a God higher than our own lives, higher than our, our jobs, than our cars, than our toys, than our family, than our church. The God most high, El Elyon. There is none before him and there is none greater. How do we live that out? I... I think about myself, like how do, I, how do I wake up every morning and not fall on my knees worshiping God most high who has put me where I'm at, that has allowed me to, to have a wife, to live in a house, to have a car to get to work, to have a job, to not be on the side of the road every night? How do I not fall down and worship him? How do I not fall down in, in honor and reverence of who he is? seeing how he has changed my life, seeing how he has changed the lives of my loved ones? How do I not do that? It's because I've found other things and I put them before him. I put my job before him. I put my wife before him. I put other things that are not the possessor of heaven and earth that are not to be worshiped, that are not to be feared and honored and revered. I put those things before him. And yet he still sent his son for us. He still sent Jesus Christ, son of God most high, for you and for me. Regardless of how far we have walked away, that he is still God most high over you. When we feel close to him or we feel far from him, he is God most high over you, over your circumstances, your situations, and he sees you. The God who created the heavens and the earth sees you. And he loves you. And he sent his son for you. That's the God we worship. That's the God we, we serve. That's the God that allows us to be a part of his kingdom. That is God most high. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and then, and then I'm going to be standing down here, and I, I want to invite some of our other leaders in the church, our, our elders, if you're in here, or uh, life group leaders. I want you all to come up, and, and if you are feeling God most high, and you need prayer to, to drop those idols, to walk away from the things that you're putting above him, Come pray with us. If you're seeing that Jesus Christ, Son of the God Most High, has come for you and offers salvation for you, come pray with one of us. If you want to know what it looks like for Jesus Christ, Son of the God Most High, to be not only your Savior, but your Lord in your life, come pray with us. 
Because the God most high that we serve, creator and possessor of heaven and earth, sovereign over every king that has walked this earth, every president that has walked this earth, loves you and desires a relationship with you. That's the God we serve. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are most high. That we don't serve a God that can be beaten or overcome by anything. That we can know that in our, our, our difficult times and in times of struggle that you are God most high. That we can know that in times of joy that we have joy because you are God most high. That we can take your name, we can bring it into this community, we can bring it into this world, Lord. We can show people a different way. That you, God most high, love them, desire a relationship with them, Lord. Oh, what a joy it would be to to see this world live as if they knew that you are God most high. If every day we woke up, Lord, and we, we fell on our knees because you are God most high above everything, above the breath in my lungs, Lord. I pray that we know that we can see that, that we can understand who you are and that we don't walk away. We don't wake up. We don't take a step. You know, go to work without acknowledging and understanding and knowing and worshiping and praising and fearing and honoring you, God Most High. We love you so much. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.